Here's the thing about money. Money makes us do the oddest things, doesn't it? I mean, game shows are filled with people who will eat, uh, engage, or endure all kinds of strange things to win it. The news is filled with moral compromise because of it. Everyone wants it, and people will do anything, many people will do anything to get more of it. In her book, uh, Are You Normal About Money?, Bernice Canner reveals what Americans would do to make a buck. For $1 million, 65% of Americans would spend an entire year on a deserted island by themselves. 30% of Americans would spend six months in jail for a crime they didn't commit. For $3,000, 24% of Americans would reveal a friend's deep, dark secret that they swore to keep. Wow. For $500, 66% of Americans would kiss a stranger, and here's one I don't get. For $50, 75% would kiss a frog. So I guess that's a blow to the self-esteem and some problems there with I would much rather kiss a stranger than a frog, but that's just me. Um, According to Canner, if you're average, if you're normal, right, the price point at which you'd shave your head would be, anyone want to take a guess? $10,000. Well, here's the thing that makes it even more strange. My wife and Lori and I were talking about this. For $3,000, people would reveal a deep, dark secret they swore to keep, but for 10 grand, it would take 10 grand before they shaved their head? So there's some priorities. So we are definitely a vain culture because we would reveal our friends' secrets but not shave our heads. I just didn't get that. The point is this. Money in our culture, by looking at these statistics, by the way, this is just a book that if you're a statistics kind of person, all it is is are these statistics. Money reveals and holds a disproportionate amount of influence in our society. Add to that, you throw in our sinful (laughs) and selfish natures, And you get the kind of thing that we've seen in the last several years in our headlines. I mean, you recall, uh, some of you, the major collapse or the collapse of a major corporation like Enron, all because of greed. Just a few years ago, uh, the Bernie Madoff uh, Ponzi scheme at the tune of billions of dollars. See, the Bible teaches that money isn't the end all of life. It's not the end by a long shot, but our culture reinforces that idea. Now, teaching about money... Uh, in a church can be a very delicate thing. Uh, There have been churches and pastors that have abused this topic and have even fleeced the sheep of God. I personally have known of churches that would take three offerings in any given service, and and not the offerings that jingle, mind you, the offering that folds, if you know what I'm talking about. Right Now, on the other extreme, pastors, for fear of chasing people away, and churches don't even want to address the issue at all. And the problem is the majority of Christians in the middle are not getting balanced good teaching on the role of money in our lives. Now this morning, uh, we're not going to be talking about tithing because that's not what our our passage is about. Actually, what our passage is about this morning is living for what really matters. But money is the backdrop because it's so important in our culture. So if you have a Bible, open up to Luke Chapter 16, and if you're using one of the pew Bibles in front of you, it's page 875. We're going to look at Luke 16, verses 1 through 13, the parable of the dishonest manager. And I just want to be clear that this passage is all about money, but the real issue, as I said, is living for what matters. But since money often reveals what we really do live for, not just what we say we live for, 
It serves as a great indicator of what we really believe. Does that make sense? And that's why I think this passage has so much to speak into our lives uh, as with our finances as well as everything else. Now, if you get nothing else out of this morning's sermon, I want to give you the big idea. And the big idea of this passage is simply this, that life is a stewardship from God. And that stewardship must be marked by faithfulness. And that faithfulness is no more clearly seen than in the use of our money. So there's three parts to that. Number one, our life is a stewardship from God. Number two, that stewardship, what must mark it is faithfulness. Number three, faithfulness is no more better seen than in the way we use our money because it's such a big part of our culture. Let me pray. We'll give a little context and then dive into the parable. Father, we thank you that your word is rich. It addresses every single issue that the human heart will deal with, both our joys and our struggles, the things that are very obvious and the things that are not so obvious. The way we deal with our finances to our sexuality, your word is exhaustive, comprehensive, and a light to us. Spirit, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you have to teach us from this amazing text in Luke 16. We thank you that you have not left us orphans, but have provided to us richly through your word, your people, the church, and your spirit. We pray and thank you for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Luke chapter 16 falls strategically between the three lost parables in Luke 15. In Luke 15, Jesus talks about the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost son. And then right after Luke 16, we have these great discipleship themes in Luke 17, 18, and 19. So this chapter, Luke 16, falls directly into the section of Luke's gospel where he's really nailing issues of discipleship and what it means to be a follower of Christ. One of the primary things that comes out is that our perspective in life and our possessions in relationship to God's kingdom are key areas of our discipleship. In other words, how we move through our life and how we relate to the stuff in our life are key to the way we follow after Christ. So what we're going to do this morning is look at this parable in two, in two kind of chunks. Number one, just the parable itself in verses 1 through 18, and then Jesus' application to the parable in verses 9 through 13. So let's look at the parable itself, verses 1 through 8. I will read it, and we'll just jump into it. Luke 16, verse 1. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. Verse 4, I have decided what I should do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I'll stop there. It's a pretty straightforward parable. 
a situation that was common in, in ancient Palestine, not unlike our own modern society. You have a, a wealthy businessman who is a landowner, has a lot of real estate holdings, and uh, hires a manager or a steward to watch over them because he lives too far away. Pretty common situation, but something goes awry in this rig- pretty common arrangement, and that is the manager's found to be less than trustworthy. Whether he's embezzling or skimming off the top, we don't know. He's just no longer trustworthy. Now, we can certainly at least understand that these kinds of things happen. A USA article uh, said about two years ago that 48% of American workers admit to taking unethical or illegal actions on the job in the past year. Yikes. The U.S. Department of Commerce records that employee dishonesty costs the American businesses over $50 billion annually. The department also reports that one in three business failures is the direct result of employee theft. So naturally, any one of us, if we were the landowner, would do exactly what he did when he found out about the manager. In verse 2, he fired him. Now, hopefully you can't relate to what the manager was doing, but you can relate to his experience of facing unemployment. You see it in verse 3. He begins to panic. He says, what, do, what shall I do? My master's taking away my job from me. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. So he's weak and proud, and he's going to be unemployed. Not a good situation to be in. But we can understand the stress, can't you, of losing your job. Number one, there's the anxiety of losing your job, and then the anxiety of, are there future prospects for getting a job? We understand what that might be like, even though we don't understand why this manager did what he did. His time was up. He knew it. What's he going to do now? Well, he says in verse 4, I figured out what I'm going to do, so that when I'm removed from management, these people will invite me into their homes. That's a way of saying, open up their generosity to me, take care of me. We see in verses 6, 7, and 8, basically what he's doing, his master plan. And to us, uh, reading this ancient text of measures of oil, measures of wheat, we have no idea how to contextualize this. So this is what basically is going on. The first man owed a debt of, it says, 100 measures of oil. That was equivalent to about 875 gallons of olive oil, roughly the same amount that's produced by about 150 olive oil trees. The worth was what's called a thousand denarii, and a denarii in that time was basically a day's wage. So this first individual owed the master nearly three years of an annual salary. Well, the the discount program continues in verse 7. He calls the second man. The second man owes even more. He owes a hundred measures of wheat, which was worth roughly 2,500 denarii. So the second man owed the master roughly seven years of his salary. These are sizable debts that these men owe. And the manager says, I have a great idea to get in good with these guys. I'm going to slash what they owe. So he reduces it by 50% in some case. Imagine if your bank called you and said, hey, guess what? I'm going to slash your mortgage by 50%. Right? Or if you're a student, imagine if Sally Mae called you and said, yeah, you don't owe us 50% of what you borrowed from us. We would really be endeared to those people. We'd want a bank there. We'd like these people. Now, if you're paying attention to what's going on, look at verse 8. You've got to ask yourself, what is going on? Because here we have a landowner who's firing a dishonest manager. And then in verse 8, he commends the dishonest manager and, and almost admires him. I love the way the New Living Translation translates verse 8. They they translate it like this. 
the rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd, right? So, by the way, if I didn't say this earlier, this particular parable, uh, Luke 16, 1 to 13, is one of the most complex parables uh, of Jesus' parables to interpret wisely. Of all the ink that's been spilled on interpreting parables by scholars and theologians, this one's got it beat hands down, and we can see why. For one thing, the parable's main character is this dishonest guy. The master fires him, then later admires him, and then Jesus uses the dishonest manager as an example for the disciples to follow. This is one of those kinds of things that shows me the Bible couldn't have been made up because we would not put something like this in our holy text. It's too confusing. But this is also the kind of thing that this is the real world. Real world is very complex. So how do we make sense of what's going on here and the point Jesus is making to his disciples? I believe there are three options here. Number one, three options that explain what's happening to help us put this in its proper context. The first option is this. The manager is just radically reducing prices. He, he knows his time is up. He knows his business network, so to speak. So he's radically reducing prices in the hopes that when they find out later he's unemployed, they would be so endeared to him that they would give him a job. Or even they would realize the perception might be because he got fired because he was so gracious when he slashed prices. So they feel like they would owe this manager. Make sense? So that's option number one. Option number two as th- is that this manager was actually just taking away the interest, the extraordinarily high interest that was put onto the original loans. Now, Deuteronomy 29.13, if you're a note taker, write that down. De- not, Deuteronomy 29.13 actually prohibits the people of God from adding interest in loaning to each other. Deuteronomy 23.19 says this, You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is loaned for borrow. But clearly, that hasn't been the case, and there's just been extraordinary interest attached to these loans, kind of like our credit cards, right? 23% interest, it's crazy. So the second option is that this manager is simply wiping out the interest. So that would make them look good to these other Israeli borrowers because now he was conforming to what Torah taught in the first place. The third option is that this manager, this steward, is simply removing his commission off the top. In other words, he's sacrificing his own profit and just asking these debtors to pay what they actually owe. You see, in antiquity, uh, people like the, like the steward like this or the tax collector would be allowed to tax the people whatever they wanted. Whatever the people could pay, they could tax if they could get that money. So if Rome's tax was 5% and I was a tax collector and I thought you could pay a 15% tax, I would charge you 15% and split the difference. Does that make sense? So as long as Rome got their 5%, that Rome didn't care how the tax collectors worked. In like manner, what can be going on is this steward is simply making his living off of the interest charge or the commission, and he's getting rid of the commission. Now, my guess is that, number one, any one of these options can be possible to explain the situation, but I think it's a combination of options two and three. The manager reduced, waived his commission entirely, and then just got rid of the interest. That way, his master didn't lose any of his original investment, and all the debtors would be happy about it. So it's a win, win, win for everybody. 
Now this would account for the master commending the manager's foresight, which, by the way, is the the, the focus of this parable. So what we have in verse 8 is Jesus' commentary on the situation. Notice in uh, the second half of verse 8, for the sons of this world, which in the parable is illustrated by the dishonest manager, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What Jesus is saying is that the people of this world are sometimes more wise in preparing for future realities than God's own children, than the disciples of Christ themselves. Now, Jesus goes on to explain this point and apply it. And we're going to look at that in verses 9 through 13, the explanation of this parable. Let's pick it up at verse 9. Jesus says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And I'll unpack that in a little bit. Verse 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? Verse 12, and if you have not been faithful in what is another's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The driving point is that this dishonest manager realized that what his future would hold, and he began to change dramatically and radically the way he was living in the present to prepare for it. Now, that emphasis, that point of this parable has obvious applications to all of our Christian life in many ways. It applies to the way we use our time, the way we use our leisure, the way we fill up our lives with various pursuits. But since the context in Luke 16 is about money, I think we want to focus on the applications as it has to money, right? So what I'm saying is that our applications are going to be about money, but the main principle can be applied to all aspects of our lives. So the first application would be simply this in verse 9, be generous with money. Look at verse 9, Jesus says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So let me just talk a little bit about this phrase. I think it's really not translated well in the ESV, if that's what you're reading. Unrighteous wealth, you get the impression that, um, that that's money that was gained through uh, ill means, so to speak. You know, that they got that money in a dishonest manner. That's not what's going on. The, the word behind that simply means the world... And oftentimes, the concept of the world is also synonymous with unrighteousness. That's why in the NIV, if you've got the NIV, it says worldly wealth. I think that's a better translation. Jesus isn't making a commentary on the uh, morality of the money. He's just making a commentary on the the kind of uh, eternal perspective of that money. And you'll see later in verse 11, he contrasts uh, uh, worldly wealth and eternal wealth or true riches from false riches, okay? So the unrighteous thing is it's bad because it sends us in this direction that we think the money is bad. That's not what he's getting at. It says, so basically, verse uh, 9, I tell you, make friends with your, for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, when that money's gone, when, when that money no longer has the meaning that we always think it does in this life, they may receive you, the beneficiaries of your, these friends you've made, you using your worldly wealth, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Make friends with your money by proper use. P.T. Barnum, uh, he said, money is a terrible master, but it can be an excellent servant. Why, why, think about that. I mean, 
why is money a terrible master? Why do you think money is a terrible master? Because in our culture, everyone loves money. I mean, there's songs about it. There's you know, all kinds of things about money. Let me put it this way, okay? John Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest mans of his time. Somebody asked him, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money does it take to be happy? You know what his response was? Just a little more. Just a little more money. That's why money is a horrible taskmaster, because money's never satisfied. When you have so much of it, it's not happy. It wants more. So Barnum was right. Money is a terrible taskmaster, but it can be a wonderful servant. When money is not the goal, but a means to a goal, it changes the dynamic. You can use your money to be generous to others as a way to bless others. Money as a way to give to others. Money as a way to relieve the distress of others. And you've all had the experience. I mean, this is a generous church. You know what it's like to be able to bless somebody. And you love it even more when you do it anonymously. Because you want that person to be blessed. And you're so thankful that you have the money to bless them with it. And that's why it can be a wonderful servant. But we want to be generous with our money because God, our Father, is a generous God. Don't you remember when we studied Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 8? Paul said that God lavishes His grace upon us in abundance according to the riches of His grace and mercy. God loves to give as His children. We want to be like our Father in being generous with what He's given to us. Some of the greatest movements in recent church history were made possible because people were generous with their money. If you've been a Christian a while or have been in the church, you might have heard the name William Tyndale. William Tyndale was responsible for the first English language Bible, and he paid for it with his life. But he, but he would not have been able to do what he did if it wasn't for an unknown cloth merchant who was extremely wealthy by the name of Humphrey Monmouth who financed Tyndale's work. Another name we're familiar with, George Whitfield, a, a, a prominent evangelist and revivalist in the 1800s, completely changed the landscape of England and the U.S. through these revivals. Would not have been possible if it wasn't for his gospel patron, I call it, a woman named Lady Huntington, who financed uh, Whit, um, George Whitfield, who made it possible for him to continue on being an itinerant preacher and evangelist. All these names, William Tyndale, George Whitfield, the ones we know were made possible because people behind the scenes, Lady Huntington, Humphrey Monmouth, were generous with their finances. You see, they were doing what Jesus is talking about in verse 9. When they come into heaven, yes, Whitfield and Tyndale, they're going to get the high fives. But I'll bet you Monmouth and Huntington, whom we hardly know in our culture, are going to get just as high high fives because of what Jesus is saying here. If it wasn't for those gospel patrons financing those movements, Europe would not have had a Bible in its own language, and the revivals that reshaped England and the U.S. would not have taken place. You know, the funny thing about money is the more you give, the more you like to give. Have you noticed that? And the less you give, the less you like to give. You know, that's one practical reason that every week in our service, we take up an offering, right? It, yes, it, it's, 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 it's also because, yeah, we got to pay for the lights, we have a staff, that we got buildings and all that, and we want to give to the Lord. But it's also one way every week where we're just 
loosening that death grip that money has on our souls, that as the plate passes by, we're given the opportunity to say, no, my security is not here. My security is here. When that plate comes by, we can say, my trust is not in how much I have in my bank account. My trust is in the Lord, and I'm giving to him the first fruits of all that I'm bringing in to show, God, you're the one that provides. You're the one that cares, not these pieces of paper and these coins. But it's hard, isn't it? In the United States uh, Senate, there's a chaplain. Peter Marshall was his name, and one of the senators came up to him with a real struggle. Marshall said, hey, what's the problem, Senator? He says, you know, look, chaplain, I have been a faithful tither my whole life. I've been a Christian as long as I can remember. And, you know, when I was a young man just starting off in politics, it was easy to tithe. I was making 20 grand as an intern, and, you know, I could afford the $2,000. So Marshall says, so what's the problem? He says, well, I'm making $500,000 now, and I can't afford to give away $50,000 every year. So the chaplain looked at him and says, boy, you, you have a problem. Should we pray? He says, yes, would you pray for me? So they bowed their heads, and chaplain prayed with authority and boldness. He says, Lord, thank you for the faithfulness that this man has shown in his youth. Lord, would you help him do something about it? Would you change something, God? Would you take his $500,000 salary and bring him back to twenty grand a year so he can afford to give back to you, Lord? <laughs> Not the response he was looking for. The point is, being generous is good, but it is hard. It is something that we have to cultivate. We need to cultivate it. But because it's hard, notice Jesus also says there's an incentive here. There is a return on this investment at the end of verse 9. So that when it fails, it's talking about money, when it's no longer important, when it's no longer this thing, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. I'd like the NIV, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What Jesus is talking about is the anticipation of future reward right? Don't mishear me here, but Christianity is not against self-interest. Jesus says himself, don't lay up treasures where moth and rust and thieves can destroy and steal. What does Jesus say to do with our treasures? Lay them up in heaven where they're not going to get destroyed, where they can't be stolen. Jesus isn't saying treasures is a bad thing. As a matter of fact, he's appealing to the fact that we want blessings, we want treasures. That's a good thing. And Jesus, I mean, uh, Jesus is a better capitalist than most capitalists are. He says, put your money, effort, efforts, and energy in not the thing that's going to fade away. Put it in the thing that will never fade away. There's a return on this investment that you cannot beat. Be wise and invest there. Oh, we need to do that. I think in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul kind of saying something similar to that. He says to the Galatians, uh, don't grow weary in, in doing good. I thought I could get to it in time, but I didn't. And let us not grow weary in doing good. Why? Listen to what he says. Because in due season, you will reap a reward. The Bible's not against doing things out of self-interest. It's when that self-interest becomes idolatrous that it's wrong. But the Bible's saying, hey, Use your money wisely so that you're truly blessed. Lay up treasures in heaven. So be generous with our money. The second point from this parable, if we're going to be generous with our money, we also need to be faithful with our money. Oh, this is so important. Our faithfulness reveals our character. Our character determines our usefulness to the kingdom. Our usefulness to the kingdom determines our eternal rewards. Think about that. 
Think about that. Our faithfulness, and I know I'm going to repeat it because it's so important. Our faithfulness shapes our character. Our character determines how God can use us for his purposes. How God uses us for his purposes determines how many rewards there will be for us. You want to have great rewards? I do. Start with being faithful with what you're given. And in this parable, money is being used as the context to teach the principle that how you steward your life, in this case in our finances, shows whether or not you actually believe there's an ultimate accountability for how you live your life. What he says here in this parable is that worldly wealth, important as it is, important as it is, is of little value compared to the true riches of being used by God. That's what he's getting at. I mean, think of the 10,000 ways you want to see God use your life, right? And in part, that's going to be determined, according to Luke 16, 1 to 13, based upon how you handle worldly wealth. Now, I'm not building an entire theology about this. This is not a health and wealth gospel. Just don't hear that. I'm simply teaching what Luke 16 is revealing, that in part, how we are blessed with true riches by being used of God is determined with how we handle worldly riches. I talked about the, the use of the word unrighteous in verse 11. He's simply contrasting and comparing worldly wealth with true wealth that is of a spiritual nature, as of an eternal nature. Jesus is saying that if you're not faithful to live for what matters in your worldly wealth, why would God entrust you to have true wealth? Right? So, so let me make a point of application. That if you want God to use your life more, use your money for God more. Now, I can't think of too many passages that, that teach that. This is one rare exception But as I study this passage, that's a direct correlation to what's being taught here. You want God to use your life more? It can happen. And part of that is using your wealth for God more, right? And the reason that that's important leads to the third point, and that's because it's not about money at all. (laughs) It's, It's not about money at all. The whole point of the parable is not money. Money, in this case, is only the stage upon where the real story is being told, and that real story is that living in light of future realities, determining how I'm going to live today. And money is just one of many ways that we reveal that. In other words, if I really believe what Scripture teaches, if I really believe the gospel, it ought to change and conform the way I live in practical, everyday ways, and the use of my finances is one real clear case of that. And that's what's being taught here. You know, it's no coincidence, if you're a note taker, it's no coincidence that this parable is happening in the same chapter that where we see a negative example in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man completely ignored this teaching. And then the rest of that parable shows how in eternity, the, the, the actions they made in this life affected their eternal state. We also see in Luke chapter 19, a positive example of this very principle in the, 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 the life of Zacchaeus, who gets radically saved when he confronts Christ, and he starts giving his money away. He can't be stopped to do it. Jesus didn't tell him to do it. It was just an overflow of the grace and abundance given to him that wanted to come out of his life. And in between those two, that story and that parable, Jesus says in Luke 17, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life will keep it. 
And then finally, in Luke 18, when Jesus is speaking to the rich young ruler, verses 22 to 30, you see the same dynamic being played out. The the reality of the parable of Luke 16 being played out in Luke 18. And Jesus says the same thing in verses 29 and 30. And Jesus said to them, his disciples, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Right? I'm not, again, I'm not giving a health, wealth gospel, and I'm not saying there's a one-to-one correspondence. If I give God 10 bucks, I get 20. That's how it works. This is great. That's not what's being taught here. What's being taught here that Jesus is saying is you cannot outgive God. You cannot outgive your heavenly Father. He will not be your debtor. You cannot outgive him no matter what you give up, no matter what sacrifice you make. You will be paid back in t- tenfold in this life and the life to come. It may not be the way you anticipated or the way you seemed, but God won't be your debtor. He will, you can't outgive him because he's too generous for that. This is why this passage ends, though, with a warning in verse 13. So be careful with money because no servant can serve two masters. You're either going to steward your life and the use of your possessions and finances according to the values of this world, or you're going to steward your life and your possessions and finances according to the values of God's word. But you're going to do one or the other. You can't do those both because they're at polar ends. They're, they're, they're opposing each other. So the bottom line is that the bottom line is not the bottom line. We have studied a parable where we see a man for all his shortcomings. He was a dishonest rascal of a man. But for all shortcomings, he was commended because he saw what was coming and he changed the way he lived in light of that. Whether or not you are a Christian, we all have to give, to use the expression in verse 2, an account of our management. We all feel it. We all know it. And the reality is, we all know our ledgers are not going to come out balanced. I know mine's not. And, you know, and, and if, if that's shocking to hear a pastor say that, I, my ledger is not going to come out balanced. I can barely balance my checkbook, let alone a lifetime of faithfulness to the gospel in, in, perfect, in perfection. It's not going to happen. You know, when we look at this text, we should, because Jesus is using the, the, the dishonest manager as an example of how we ought to live, and that's true, but my hope is not going to be in living a perfect life. Number one, I can't do it. Number two, it just won't happen. My hope, and who I really actually resonate with in this parable, is I'm more like one of these men who were called in and had their debts expunged. You see, because even if I could live my life perfectly, that's not going to pay my debt. I need, you need someone willing to pay your debt entirely. That's the gospel. So Jesus wants us to to not avoid the major and focus on the minor. He wants us to do both. He wants us to understand future realities and live our lives like we actually believe it, but we also want us to to rely on him to pay our debts. And we'll close with this verse. It's what Paul wrote to the Corinthians that captures this. Paul wrote to them. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, catch this, that though he was rich, yet for your sake... He became poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you 
for the parable of the dishonest manager. Father, would you be so kind and to help us, your church, to live in light of what the future is bringing us, to to live like we believe what Scripture teaches, but also to put our hope in Christ, who paid a debt that none of us could ever repay. We thank you for that. We thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.